Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast. I know so many of you listening to this show love your local bar, your local restaurant, maybe your local hotel, and have so many fond memories of time in hospitality businesses. This is the podcast where we get to chat to the human beings behind the scenes of that industry. Maybe the chefs or the bakers or the coffee roasters or the gin distillers or the craft brewers or the entrepreneurs, but all doing an amazing job of making sure that hospitality stays interesting and the big dull formulaic brands do not take over our high street please enjoy the show In this week's conversation, we are chatting to Simon Tolson, and it's very fair to say that he has had his fair share of highs and lows to get to where he is now as a human of hospitality. An early high point was his first paid day as a fisherman. Since the age of three, he'd wanted to fish, and he literally felt like an astronaut when he stepped onto the deck of a fishing vessel. But several years later, now married and with a mortgage, he had to switch careers. And he left the sea for a surprisingly different job, selling printers and photocopiers for Fitney Bowes. Now that did surprisingly lead to a new high because the sales skills that he was trained in and developed not only worked for office equipment, but they came in very handy when he turned his attention to holiday homes. And it was the early noughties and there were generous tax breaks if you were renovating a property such as a holiday let. So Simon and a colleague began to build a new business offering holiday homes as promising investments. So far so good, but then the financial crash and in 2007 everything changed. In this program you're going to hear how Simon worked his way out of the prolonged low that followed and how, despite challenging odds, he's now the proud owner of Rumsey Holiday Homes and he's got beautiful views over the sea and even gets the occasional chance to fish. I very much hope you enjoy the roller coaster of this week's conversation. Okay, Simon Tolson, thank you so much for sparing the time to be on the podcast. Very much appreciated. Okay, nice to be here, Mark. Thanks for the invite. No, can you just explain uh, where in the world are we and why? Uh, so here we are. We're in a fabulous property overlooking Pool Harbour just by the Sandbanks Peninsula. And it's one of the properties we manage because uh, I own Rumsey of Sandbanks, which is the brand name, Rumsey Holiday Homes, as people may know it which uh, for decades is part of the Rumsey and Rumsey empire, which is all now gone and we're the last vestige of that business. Nice, excellent. And literally, we are overlooking Brownsea Island, aren't we? One of the, I'm going to do my, uh, my sad local knowledge, second largest natural harbour in the world and all that jazz. But Sandbank's fundamentally known as a kind of, I don't know, the playground for the, uh, for the football stars and stuff like that. Has it still got that reputation or has that eased off a little bit in the last couple of years? It was known as the third most expensive real estate in the world, I think, wasn't it? Uh, it, it was. I always thought that was a bit of a cheat because it's not actually a place because it's pool and it's a bit like if you took a square in Belgravia you could call it the most expensive place in the world or you know how how narrow do you do that um it does still have that reputation a bit it actually really isn't like that there's there's most of the property on sandbanks is relatively modest actually there's only about 15 or 20 super homes uh, and the rest are actually quite modest flats and there's still a lot of the original bungalows 
and a lot of people that have owned places for decades that they bought for what seems now like the price of a car. Yeah. So absolutely. that's typical. Okay. Well, we'll come back to Sandbanks when we get to uh, to what you're doing now. But I love to kind of learn the triggers and the history of uh, of people and how they've ended up doing what they're doing. You've really been a man of three careers, and it started with fish fundamentally and hospitality wise I think and can you just tell us a little bit about your your fishing background uh, yes well um, I've no explanation because it's not in my family but ever since I can remember since I was three or four years old I just loved fishing and this was a big distraction through my somewhat checkered academic career um, so while I was busy failing A levels and then eventually scraping into a course in fishery science at Plymouth Polytechnic as it was then uh, all the time all I really wanted to do was go fishing uh, which I just didn't do and eventually one day I just sat down and thought I just don't want to do this anymore and much to the chagrin of my parents uh, I just packed it in and got a job working on a fishing boat which for me was like being an astronaut it was all I wanted to do and every day when I got up I felt you know, like it was a privilege uh, to get up. You know, so that's was that's that how was, I got was that a day boat? Uh, yeah, it was a day boat. I never, I never worked in. So, uh, and one of the first things I did the first winter, I was full time fisherman. We took took the boat to Cornwall, and that's where the connection with Cornwall, which comes up later, comes. So we spent the winter fishing on mackerel in Cornwall with hand lines uh, or hurdy gurdies, as they're known. And, um, and that was my connection there, and I kept going back. And then I came back to Poole and, and worked for five or six years on crabs and lobsters out of Poole. Okay, nice. And did your, you, so you did a degree in, what was it, fishing before this? Did, you, uh, did, did that uh, well, help? Does that uh, help that you was, that's the size You must have been the only academic did, on the trawler. Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, no, I did two and a half terms of a degree in okay. fishery science, which is actually, it sounds daft, it's actually a serious degree because it produces people in aquaculture to farm fish and trout and it produces technicians for the fishing gear industry so there was a lot of technical stuff about it. it was very interesting however every day I didn't want to study I just wanted to go fishing which happened quite a lot and hence uh hence I had to agree that I wasn't um it wasn't for me yeah. <laughs> quite quickly yeah nice N never gone back and finished that uh no and I don't and I think I'd be kidding myself if I thought I could sit down for more than 20 minutes without <laughs> <laughs> without rushing from a classroom in horror yeah. so you went from catching the uh fish to setting up a business shiny-eyed fish uh how, how did that come about what yeah. did it do uh, I still think it's a great name because it describes <laughs> <laughs> no one else ever does but go yeah well whilst Working on a fishing boat means you actually work probably less than 50% of the time because you can only, there's stages of the tide you can't work and then when there's weather you can't work and you're paid a share. So basically, you kind of starve to death a lot of the time. <laughs> That's and, a great sales pitch there for uh, the fishermen. Yeah, well, <laughs> I wouldn't, it, it was also phenomenally dangerous at the time as well, but you know, uh, it's it's what you do when you were young. So that was it. But so during the spare time to try and make a few quid, what I what what I decided is I would sell fish to restaurants, and um, it was fantastic because Greenslades, who are still in pool today, and the same guys are still there. Bless them, the same guys were there. They had the retail price, they had the restaurant price, and they actually would give. 
uh, vendors are priced ten percent below the restaurant. So because they, in a in a sort of strange old tech way, they understood that if they gave a bit of margin to people who went out and promoted their goods, then that that couldn't be undercut by the restaurateurs going straight to them. Then it would, you know, they'd make more money, I presume. But also, they were just like really nice guys who supported <laughs> the industry. And so I'd go and I'd go down first thing in the morning. I knew all the guys. I'd pick the whatever was best for the day. I'd put it in my battered van, and I'd drive it round the, the restaurants, dressed up as a fisherman in comedy oilskins, and flog it to the chefs. Right, and. That was a real education because uh, some restaurants, the chefs were massively enthusiastic and the whole kitchen crew would run out and uh, swoon over whatever was good that day. And some would say, well, what should I bother? I can get, um, I can get it frozen, portioned, you know, without. <laughs> yeah. And the, the correlation between the attitudes and the expense of the restaurant was not the same. Some cheap, some cheaper independent places were enthusiastic and some major um, high-end hotels and restaurants were of the, you know, I can't be bothered to buy fresh. So it was a, it was a good education and it was really a, a sideline and my intention was to start it up full-time. Um, but I ended up uh, deciding that I'd go and work for in sales for a food company to get a network. and a, um, So I got an interview with a frozen food company um, which didn't work out because it was cheap or they didn't want me. But then the recruitment agent I'd gone through persuaded me to go for another sales job. So I ended up selling office equipment, wow. which was, a you know, because <laughs> I needed to pay. By this time, I'd got married and bought a house, so that's I quite, had to pay the mortgage. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what happens sometimes, I think. So you'd gone from, from wild trawler fisherman yeah. to... Fish seller pretending to be a fisherman to selling photocopiers. Uh, yes, <laughs> what was yes. the time frame? Mainly equipment, and that was over. Uh, there was about five or six years at sea, okay. uh, and then I entered the the frontline sales commission based <laughs> world of selling with with Pitney Bowes, who are famous uh, famous for training their people. Pitney Bowes and Xerox were the two places then where you, where you went to get a. a as it were, an education, if you were going to be a salesman, and they recruit, they had massive recruitment days, and it was it was just above the sort of pyramid selling level. It was a genuine actual job with a car and a small salary, but basically it was sell or starve. So. Yeah. And, but they actually teach you the technique of selling, not just get out there and sell, Simon, but this is how to do it. Yes. Because that's a great skill to get. The, the training was literally life-changing yeah. in they sent you off for a couple of weeks somewhere and you came back with this superpower and when it worked like you couldn't believe it would work and they teach you this like stuff the most basic things the alternative clothes you know ask don't say don't say don't ask for yes or no ask for one thing or the other and the first time you sat down and you'd say oh and um would you like your slogan printed in red or blue and the guy would say oh blue and you were like, oh, my God, it worked. Yeah. And you'd say, okay, well, if I could throw the slogan in with it, would you would you go ahead today? And he'd say, um, well, yeah, okay. And and it was like you never believed it, yeah. th that it could happen, but the most basic things. And actually, through my life, those, those first two, I've been on many, many, many 
courses and training had increased, but nothing's had the impact of that first fortnight of yeah. of basic skills. Yeah. yeah. So do you still use some of those skills now then? Have they sort of stayed with you uh, for life? Or? Every single day of my life. Really? Always. On the phone. Yeah. Um, if I could do that weekend for five hundred quid, can we <laughs> can will you book right now with your card? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, would you rather have the uh the one with two parking spaces or the sea view? It's it's every day of my life I still yeah. use those. It's funny I think, isn't it? We pick up these skills through life and, and almost subconsciously use them. But I always love it if if some of my team sometimes have gone off and worked for a, a big corporate quite often as long as they're not there too long I'll get quite excited because I'll they'll teach you some stuff and you'll come back with it and then if you can put it back into that more independent creative sector they're great skills because I'm guessing you prefer selling holiday homes to oh, to, to selling office equipment <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean we, we we you know we used to sell folding and inserting machines that kind of didn't really work but we would we would such a you know we were such a well trained team that somehow we were able to overcome this like minor inconvenience <laughs> and of course there was no social media for people to post that you know that it didn't work so so you could do it then yeah excellent so uh, how does that end up then because the the next big hospitality chunk was was fundamentally holiday homes in Cornwall I think wasn't is that right so how yes, do you go from that's right well how do you make via, that um, uh, uh, what happened was in in the middle was a bit of property business and being a financial advisor I forgot to mention that bit right okay. that's also in. handed numbers come up a lot in life, uh, don't yes they? that's right well uh, the sales path went up we had a very happy accident because it was the start of the tech boom and um uh, there was software to be sold and uh, for big numbers and none of the people who could do the software could sell stuff. So nowadays it's the same person. So what they did is they recruited Barrow boys like us, basically, to go with the technical people. And um, so there was suddenly a big demand for people that could sell stuff to, to, and could understand the basics of software, and I've always been a bit of a keen techie, to, uh, to go and sell software for people. And so accidentally we ended, you know, ended up getting higher and higher salaries and one person would go and he'd ring all his mates and say, oh, over here we're selling. So I ended up selling some abs- sort of niche but highly expensive software to developers. Uh, and so I bought a holiday home in Cornwall which which I'd always wanted and thought, okay, if I could buy it. And it was a very modest one. Um, and two things happened. First, first of all, uh, I rung up the agency and I said, okay, I'd like to put my holiday home with you. And they said, oh, fantastic. And commission, be commissioned me to I said, oh, great. And they said, oh, and I said, oh, and how much is the cleaning and the caretaking? And they said, well, oh, no, we, we don't do that. That's like... That's, down to you to organise. And I said, when do you answer the phone, like, for the guests? They said, oh, no, 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 no. We, we, we're a holiday agency. What we do is we, we rent the property and then you're on your own. It's up to you. Go and find some. We can give you a few names. You've got to find someone to answer the phone. If the guests need anything, welcome them, get the place set up. And I, like, frankly couldn't believe this and they wanted about a quarter of the rent to do that. But that was how the industry was then because the internet was in its infancy and so to get bookings you had to send out thousands of huge brochures you had to, you had to answer the phones with banks of people in fact with hindsight it's a wonder anything got done 
So that was the first bit. And so I kind of gave it a go, but I thought, because I was, because I could do a few things with, with software, I thought, well, you know, I might as well do it myself, which I did. And the second thing that happened was at the end of the first year, my accountant, uh, I sat down with the accountant and he said, um, uh, okay, you do realize that all this work you've done, um, you can, uh, you can offset the losses because it's a business. This has changed now, but at the time, you can offset that against any income you've got. Uh, so that thirty thousand you spent doing up that property, uh, we can offset that against your 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 salary and bonus that you're earning, and you'll get a twelve grand refund from from the revenue in form of a check. And I <laughs> said, "Excuse me, like." Run that by me again. And so he said, no, no, it's, it's a business. You can offset the loss against any income you've made in the last three years. And because you're a 40% taxpayer, you'll get 40% of it back. He said, oh, and by the way, because it's a business, when you sell it, you'll only, you'll only pay 10% capital gain out. So I said, just get me straight again. Even if I don't make any money, if I spend 50 and it goes up by 50, I'll get 40% of the 50 back. And then I'll only pay 10% of the 50 in the gain on the way out. Uh, and this completely blew my mind. And frankly... Quite a handy account sometimes, aren't they? Well, <laughs> they, they, he, they only said it in a retrospective, casual way. And yeah. for me, it they was like... everybody knows it. <laughs> well, for me, the opportunity then was like immediately, like there's this massive opportunity. Property was booming. And so it did my head in, frankly. And I almost couldn't go to work because it was just brilliant. And so I decided, okay, uh, a very good friend of mine who is my best man runs a big financial services agency in Poole. And uh, I decided, okay, what if we form a partnership? And what I'll do is he's got people coming in with a happy problem, a city bonus. They've sold a company. They've, you know, they've inherited me, you know, for whatever. They've got a happy money problem, preferably one they've earned because they've paid the tax on it. And... When they go around the departments and pension and investment, I'll have a department that says, okay, why don't you take some of that and we'll go and buy a house in Cornwall for you. We'll receive you. We'll do it all up. And uh, you'll get 40% of what you spend on it back. You'll have exposure to residential in your portfolio. And it's something you can enjoy using. And, and it was extremely successful because people would say oh well, that sounds quite it's, interesting it's a pretty good pitch to be fair you're right you are good at that sales i was probably getting my wallet out then yeah yeah that's right yeah <laughs> well, well that's that sounds that sounds better and then i had an even more genius idea because i said okay well what we do i'm not actually going to charge anything for doing all this but what we'll do is we'll value the house when we buy it we'll work out the expenses in and then in two years time we'll value it when we sell it and um we'll take um we'll take 30 percent of the upside and and you keep 70 percent. so you may you keep 70 and and we get 30 and i'll manage it in the meantime that goes in and better than that that 30 percent will charge it as a fee you can offset it against um your tax so you'll actually get 12 percent of the back so you'll only pay 18 percent. so you'll get 82 percent. i'll get 18 so that sound like a deal? Upside only. Genius. Upside mm. only. You'll probably 
spotting the flaw here, thinking of the subsequent history in this business plan. <laughs> okay. Well, the property doesn't always go up. Is that okay. the one yeah, yeah, the understatement of yeah. the, the, the century. And so we did about 15 or 20 of these. And because, um, because I didn't want to trust that asset and my client's assets and my asset, I, we did all the, all the marketing and the caretaking and the looking after guests and the looking after owners. I set up and did it ourselves. And it was actually a sort of a cost. We did charge them, but it, you know, with the staff and it's the scale of it, it actually lost a little bit of money, but that was fine. It was part of running the business. And then 2008, nine, we all get up one morning and, um, and Northern Rock people are battering the doors down and overnight every, everything changes. So um, I'd also, like many people did at the time, I'd bought a whole bunch of properties myself and the income from them didn't cover the mortgage payments, but that didn't matter because they were going up much faster than um, the interest payments, so what could possibly go wrong? Uh, and so li almost literally overnight, we found ourselves, instead of looking forward at a position on a dozen properties of, of supreme profit and you know uh, retirement, it was basically wiped out overnight. And on top of that, my property portfolio, I had to sell them all because we were underwater on just about on it and so we ended up and struggling on and then three months later in the budget Gordon Brown announced that because there had to be harmonization after the EU you'd no longer be allowed to offset income uh, losses against other income for holiday properties wow that's and, a tough three months and so the entire <laughs> business everything was um, completely evaporated in a three or yeah, six sure month period um, and this is where I have one of those sliding doors moments, so I'm putting it in. So I hung on to my own house. I rented it out. I had a pretty large house. I rented it out. I moved into a modest, smaller house. And I said, okay, I'm going to have to go to work, go back to work and we'll tidy things up. And I went for, uh, I called round all my network, went to my mates I got hold of somebody who was managing and that I'd done well for when I was there. And I got an interview uh, with a company that sold call centers, like complete solutions, big business. You know, we're going to set up a 100 person call center, 200, you know, multi million pound deals, big salary, big, you know, bonuses, everything. Okay, I can work my way out of it. And I went up there, and the guy who was the top one on my team was one of the guys I'd worked with that. I'd actually beaten one year before, so I got recommendations. All good. And they said, brilliant, you know, you can start straight away. But we're an American company, you've just got to go to human resources and uh, check that you're a fit with the company. And at the moment, I'm in the most hyped up, hyper, hyper sales mode you can get into at this point. So they send me down to human resources and genuinely there's a young lady, and if I go back now, I'll thank her, called Felicity, who's 24, who starts asking me lots of what, what kind of person, animal would you be if you were, you know, how would your friends describe you and all this kind of test. 
And in, in the end, they said, okay, can you tell me about your best moment? You know, went through. And I said, well, we had this great month where I could win a holiday to safari, which I really wanted to go on, Zimbabwe, Botswana. And there was a month to go, but to get there, I'd have to put in like the biggest month that anyone basically had ever put in. But I, you know, I worked through and at the end of it, I got over the line and I won this holiday that we really wanted to go on. My family was great. And she said, well, can you explain how you did that? And I said, well, you know, sometimes you see an interview with a serial killer and they come round in the flat and it's covered in bodies and they've no idea what happened, but that's where they were. I said, it was a bit like that. <laughs> yeah. And she looked at me and she said, well, thanks very much for being in touch. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And on the way home down the motorway, my phone rung and they said, I'm oh, really sorry we wanted you, but HR said you're not a cultural fit. Wow. For the company. Yeah. Okay. And they I'd thrown like away kind of analogies. <laughs> and I'd thrown away like a, a spectacularly opportunity. Right. Um Just, we're still pretty much in the same three months, are we? We're, we're uh, yeah, well this is within yes, within <laughs> about six months. Okay, so yes, you're definitely on a run then. So yeah, so I'm on a roll one. So I went home and I started looking into other things I could do and did a bit of consultancy and a bit training but in the meantime we had these 25 properties i had to keep running and so why did you have to keep those ones uh, the, because we still had the 20 properties belonging to the clients right. which were holiday lets in cornwall yeah. which were in one village where we okay. put everything together and that business was running but i was paying people to run it because so, you didn't get your money until exit on exactly there. yes so it went through but we did get we made you know we got the normal commission and bits and pieces but it was just because it was all staffed so what i said i had a pa at the time who'd been with me for many years so we said well all right well why don't we run it because at least we'll have a little bit of income we'll run it you know we'll take the phone calls we'll do all that looks like we've got a holiday agency now and i'll go down i'll go down to cornwall two days a week and i'll try and add because other people had asked you know to join us who weren't part of the portfolio and we'll see if we can in the meantime maybe we can make it into something we can we can offload for a few quid or make a few quid whilst we work out what to do what to do and from there it went from 20 to 25 to 30 to this is people just coming to you to talk, talk yeah, to so we started, so we decided then to yeah. advertise and and because at, i mean at the time it seems obvious at the time what was innovative was we were one-stop shop so at the time almost no agencies would do the cleaning or the caretaking which frankly is the hard bit yeah. and so we advertised saying one-stop shop just give us your let us have your property come on holiday and we'll we'll take care of everything We'll, we'll, you don't have to worry about it. We'll organize the plumbers, we'll answer the phone to the you know. so we answered the phone 24 hours a day and we did all that. This is remotely from Poole with staff on the ground in Cornwall. And sort of eventually it turned into a job and we added and gradually it grew until then we had then we got on a roll and we had 60 or 70 places and then we got a small office there and then. Someone who had an agency with 20 in the village wanted to retire. So I bought that and added it in. And then we, which gave us even more. And, and it, this it snowballed on for a few years until we got up to about 
I bought another little agency and we added some more to about 160 or 70 properties, which is a proper... What was the time frame going from 20 business. to And that was about, that was, that was about a four-year time frame. Okay. And in this in. period, you're going down to call so every I, week? What I do is get up every, get up every, every Monday morning at um, 4.30, leave at 5, arrive at 8.30 at the office in Cornwall. Uh, in the, and then I'd stay in one of the properties um, for two nights or three nights and come back and when we were when when it was busy and we were full I slept on a camp bed in the office under the literally <laughs> next to my desk or under my desk any, any reason why you didn't move there because you were quite committed by this point presumably uh, I was but um and that was always kind of kind of a plan and um but my parents live here my wife's parents well dad's there now but my wife's my wife's mum lives here Kids were at school here. Okay. I always lived here, and so it was. It was, you know, it was. Yeah, maybe when the kids leave school, there was always like two years to, next year yeah, or two years time. Year, maybe next or, year. Yeah, 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 and maybe we'd have gone down that yeah. route until until another of those sliding doors moments arrived. This is how you ended up in Paul. Before we go there, mm. what were you doing then? To 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 you know, were you having to try and add value to compete because there are a lot of holiday lets in in um, Cornwall there's also lots of hotels and B&Bs what's the story how do you make somebody's trip special how do you make a family want to go to Cornwall and stay in one of your properties yeah uh, crucial so first of all what we did was focused in on one area where people wanted to go and what you find is whoever's got the most choice wins because if you've got to look on if you want to go to a town and you've got to look across 10 different websites it's kind of irritating which is where booking.com and all those aggregators start to win so you try and make yourself the destination the website destination of choice which is the first thing the second thing was we took it to a bit more extremes was the um, the great principle, the key of the whole thing often is the first five minutes principle. And it comes from Mr. Marriott. When I was a salesman, I used to go around uh, everywhere. I quite often stayed in the Marriott. And they, it's a bit like the Gideon Bible. That one day I went there and there was a book in there by Mr. Marriott about Marriott hotels. So I read it and I was in there. And his key thing in a Marriott, and I didn't realise this, First five minutes is crucial. So if you go into a Marriott, and I'm sure it's the same now, and there's like 10 people queuing to check in, there's a sort of emergency button they press under the desk. And it sounds out, people from around the hotel will come rushing down to reception and they'll take you, they'll say, oh, get, come and sit down. I'll go and get you a coffee and don't worry, I'll check you in um, when, you know, when it's ready, because there's a bit of a queue, but, but we'll get you there. And suddenly the 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 chandelier sparkles. The music becomes it becomes more pleasant. That's the nicest coffee you've ever been. Oh man! And when you get to your room, oh, what a great room! There's plenty of space, and you know I like I like a car park view. It's more realistic. <laughs> with the, you know, your yeah. your your mindset is changed, mm, and glass half full, glass half empty is the the critical thing in with food with you know with taste when you taste a meal a beer yeah. a glass of wine if someone's told you that it's a brilliant 
than it is. And the same principle applied. So we made sure people arrived. Uh, we made sure that when they arrived in, there was fresh scones, jam, cream, a bottle of wine, some fresh flowers. The heating was on, the lights were on, because many of our places were glass off, full of glass half empty. They were old buildings. They were in the face of the sea. They'd have damp and crumbly bits. Some of them weren't super swish you know they were a bit traditional but if you've got the guest into the right mindset and i'm an expert in glass half full because everything is half full to me and then, um, my wife i'm sure she wouldn't mind me saying is slightly the opposite yeah. and so uh, as 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 i would put it uh not only is the glass half empty it's the wrong sort of water and i'm not thirsty but um that's that's how it worked out and that was the key and then we really personally we hired like a bar with the staff like the staff at jenkins like everything else we hired people that liked people to make sure they were you know they were they were looked after they didn't need any skill other than just to be one of us to you know yeah, no, it's perfect. I think that's where the link is, really, isn't it? We're all in this. We're all in the people industry, basically. Anything, food, drink, accommodation, all the way through hospitality. It's why it's called the humans of hospitality. It's the human beings that make the uh, the difference. I think, isn't it? And it worked then. So you were predominantly getting word of mouth kind of recommendations. Yeah. That was the difference. Because by the time people are there. I guess, you know, you've, you could argue you've got your money, they leave in a week and then uh, you go on to the new customer, but you uh, were very much around a referral kind of concept. No, it's re the key is a lot of this business, because especially if Cornwall you don't know it, people go back to their workplace and their families and bang on and on about the holiday they had and there was fresh flowers and there was, you know, the sea view and the opening. And then when someone else wants to go, in a, you know, in a big workplace especially, someone's going in, you start searching for cottage in Cornwall, like you don't even know north from south from whatever. So you'd always speak to the person and we'd get clusters of, we'd see loads of bookings with emails from like Leicester County Council or something. And you could, you could see, Amazing. you could in, see in, the, the clusters of, 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 yes, the impact there. And, and the other thing we did was we were early in the search engine optimization when it used to be easy. Right. And we were all over it, building pages for every phrase okay. imaginable. And we built literally thousands of pages yeah. on the site. Because so, okay. you understood it, because you, yes. you were a bit techie. <laughs> exactly. Do you think people's expectations have changed? Because is, is it still as easy as turn the heating on, put the flowers in? Or have, have people's expectations uh, become more demanding in the last few years? Uh, actually, uh, they've become a little more demanding in terms of putting up with a green bathroom or a stuffy sofa but not that much in the end the the heating on the uh, cleanliness is obviously like before 101 before we even start any conversation anywhere has got to be spotless because someone turning up to even a you know anything remotely not clean enough is a massive no-no so that's the first thing. Which is hard in old properties in Cornwall. It is, yes. Traditional properties are harder to keep clean than the new. The one we're sat in now is is immaculate with its huge white tiles and uh, buttons that control the curtains and everything's immaculate. But I imagine, uh, and we'll come we'll come to the to the sandbags one soon, but yeah, I imagine that's harder to achieve in Cornwall. Yes, it is. And it, and the key point here, and battling with the owner, you have to 
pay to get it done and it's expensive. Mm. And uh, I've constantly had a conversation with owners um, with the linen and the changeover and the stuff going in, it might be 100 or 120 quid for a changeover. And they'd say, but I pay my lady 40 pounds and she cleans my, you know, six bedroom house in. And you'd say, yeah, but do you pay her national insurance and a pension? Yeah. Do you pay her? Do you give her holiday pay? Do you super, you do the supervision? Yes. And it's a water linen. You know, you do understand that like a three bedroom house, that's like, you know, eight loads of washing with all the towels. That, you know, there's a disconnect between the value people put on that and, uh, and what it costs. Because I've been on the other end and believe me, it's hard to make a living out of providing you know, labour at, at even at even twelve or fifteen quid an hour now is is you know is really difficult. But on on the other end, people who are making many thousands perceive that as being you know not too expensive. Absolutely. So, so compared to a Marriott, you're fundamentally dealing with other people's uh, residences as well. Where I guess sometimes they're going to live in them, or, or maybe they've just moved out for the summer because they want to get some rental income. So you've got a very different beast to the traditional hospitality industry, I guess. That does dealing with the actual owners create its own set of challenges? Uh, it certainly does, and also you have to. It's taken me years to get to grips with the key is to understand what the owner wants because we have a hugely different base of owners. Some, some have got a number of unusual, it was very unusual for them to have a portfolio of properties and they'd say, look, it's, it's an investment, I just want income. Very, very few of our owners are like that. Really? A shame, they must be your dream owners, are they? <laughs> uh, uh, no, quite the opposite. Really... In fact, I almost, um, you know, it's not the sort of owner we want. We, we make a living looking after people's loved holiday homes okay. who, who can, who, who for different reasons, want to let it out um, uh, of which getting the income is only a, a part of a part of it. It's also having the place looked after, having it, you know, because they look it. after them better. If it's yeah, well, the, the, we'll come on to this with sandbanks especially. But um, if you have a, and I had when I first had a second home, I didn't, um, I didn't let it out because I didn't need to. And um, when we'd go down. It would have been empty because I know we're going to go every two or three weeks or month. But in fact, before you know it, it's 10 weeks since you've been or 12. And so you're turning up to places that's been locked up for 12 weeks and you weren't there to turn the heating on when it got a bit colder and it's dank and musty. So you've got to sort it out when you turn up late. And then my wife would kick us all out of bed on a Sunday morning and say, well, I want to get the washing round before like, <laughs> we all go. And then next time he'd say, shall we go for the weekend? You'd say, you do know, I can't face the drive and all that. I'm too tired. And so when we started renting it, we could turn up in the certain knowledge that it would be ready and waiting. And if it was a nice day, we could stay down there till five or six o'clock with the kids, let them feed them and let them sleep in the car and just leave leave everything behind the linen, you know, even leave the washing up if we wanted or, or whatever and, and, and go home. And so that enhanced our enjoyment but I couldn't justify just having a sort of butler to do that for us. And so the justification was, well, if we do some letting, we can, you know, we can enjoy the, those services ourselves and you didn't feel like it was, you know, it was a waste of money. Yeah, makes sense. So what was the trigger then to, uh, to go from all of that? You'd created this Cornish empire and now here we are sat in sandbags. Yes, well, I don't, the 
uh, we, as we expanded, we had to buy some new software and that put us in touch with a bunch of people. So eventually we started getting approaches from, there's, uh, the industry has got three or four large players who are very acquisitive and are trying to like map out Britain and compete with each other to, to hoover up all the holiday lets. Is it going on? And um, I happened to be speaking to a guy because he was talking to software as well, and and I said, you know, obviously I know you'd like you'd be interested in buying the place. I said, but like I haven't got anywhere else to go, and you know, I mean, it's what I do. But I said maybe uh, what I'm thinking of doing is setting up something in pool, you know, compete because it's all everything seems to be a bit in the doldrums up there from what we're doing here, and it's where I live, and frankly, I'd rather live there. Than, than heroes where I've always lived. And and he, he said, well, it's funny you should say that because we're just in the process of, of acquiring a, a, a agency in Paul. I don't know if you know it, like Rumsey's like thing. And of course, if you come from Paul, Rumsey's is like Harrods or something. It's a, it's a, they were they were like a combination of Savills. They were estate agents, surveyors. They actually built much of the infrastructure of Paul. The the row the row of buildings our shop is in was built by Rumsey in the thirties or forties, and they've been in been in there ever since. And uh, they sold out. The estate agency was sold out to Black Horse in the um, in the first boom in the late eighties when they. Um, uh, when they deregulated and allowed banks to buy estate agents, but what we think happened is they didn't want the um, they didn't want the holiday business, so it ended up with a property company owning it in Bristol. My suspicion is they were somehow involved in the deal and said, "Oh, don't worry, we'll you know we'll look after that." And so for twenty years it was just here with a manager and a remote management, not their core business. And so I said, well, aha, now, now we're talking. Um, if you want to part X that with the business in Cornwall, then I'd be very interested in having having that conversation. Did you get a lot of these sliding doors moments going on? Uh, yes. You had some, you had some only, bad luck as well, but uh, something. Uh, well, happened. yes, I've had my, well, I think everybody has those if you go back and yeah, if you went yeah, to the yeah. party or you didn't and, you know, met your partner or you didn't or you went to an interview and your car broke on the way or, you know, yeah. it, it can always happen. And so there was this incredible fit. Um, I'd been driving past the door of Rumsey's for a decade thinking, oh, my word, if, like, if only I could get my hands on that, what I could make it because it was it, basically nothing had changed for 20 years there. You could, you know, it was, a, it was run in the traditional way like the industry was. You know, and it was, um, and so what? The it was just such a perfect fit. You couldn't, you couldn't make up. They really wanted my business in Cornwall because it, it was dominant in one place, and which you know, whoever got that, obviously the the rest of the big boys wouldn't would find it difficult to compete to get it. And so thus, thus it all worked. A complicated deal, and I had to spend. It was a two year. I had to get the numbers up in Cornwall to a level to get the price that I wanted to to, to put in. So we, but eventually it all well, came. Two years, and they were happy to wait while you uh, sorted the numbers out. Uh, well, that was it. Eventually, we, uh, as this happens, because once your head has been turned, after about a year in, I said, "Look, everything's on the way. Why don't we just cut a deal?" Because I want 
I want to get going. Get on I want to get on with it now. My, you know, my mind is is turned elsewhere. So halfway through, everyone was happy, and right. and we shook hands. And I, I actually owned it from April seventeen, but I was still working in Cornwall. So it was, and the existing manager was coming up for retirement. So I actually got my feet under the desk in November to run the place in November seventeen. So Amazing. How did that feel? And still to this day, every day when I walk into that shop and it's it's the opposite of my name over the door. It's like Rumsey's. I mean, when I told my mother I'm buying Rumsey's, we had this like, you're buying Rumsey's? And her voice got increasingly shrill. And and to her, it's like, like I came home and said I was buying like the Bournemouth Football Club or something, or <laughs> or you know Debenhams or yeah. you know like it was it was it's you know the brand or and but she's like yeah but you're that idiot that didn't study at school and the, 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 the fisherman yes yeah no exactly so so and I still to this day feel when I walk in that that I've like I did. All those years ago, when the, I remember stepping onto that fishing boat and thinking, "Now I'm a fisherman," and that was a truly great, you know, moment in my life. And and still to this day, when I walk in the door, I, I can't. Wow, I'm like, I'm here. Of course, the reality of what I had to do when I got here was was <laughs> a, a I was blind. I was so blind. I was I was blind. It's a bit like you know, I, you know. I'd imagine I've been married since I was 20, 22, 20, so I don't know these things, but I imagine, you know, like two weeks in, you notice your new girlfriend's got a wooden leg, you know, but she hadn't, <laughs> but she hadn't noticed before because you were blinded by, you know. Yeah. And yes, it's a bit like that. The, the concept of running it and driving to work along the peninsula and sitting in the shop with the water on one side, mm-hmm. that idea of is still keeping me going every morning. It's a beautiful part of the world. And the challenge is what, because it hadn't had much done to it for 20 years, it was, uh, had a different approach to what you'd been doing. Uh, yeah. Is that an understatement? Slight understatement <laughs> of the centuries. So basically nothing had changed for 20 years and I could go on forever. There's a, there's a, there's a few things. So my favourite story I always tell is when, when I turned up and I went in and as a sign-up, um, Saturdays, for them, they were traditional. Everyone arrived on a Saturday, three o'clock collect your keys from the shop and I turned up and there's a sign at the shop that said I'm mean, closed Saturday 12 till 3 right <laughs> so I said so what's the, why are we closed Saturday to, what's that all about it's closed 12 till 3 on a Saturday I said surely we need to, you know people are coming people aren't that punctual and they, they said they, they said no, 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 no what happens if you're open they said 12 people start ringing and turning up to see if a place is ready early and they like inundate you and they can't do it. So what we do in order to avoid that, from 12 o'clock, we put the shutters down and we put the phone on answer phone so no one can get hold of us. And that way they can't bother us. And I said, well, does that mean it's three o'clock? There's like an enormous queue of people that are really upset. I refer you to the first five minute lecture. Like in the summer, we've got, you know, 50 parties of people arriving it's blazing hot they can't park mm. they can't get anywhere and then it must take some time to this oh yeah it can get really busy on a saturday like to go, going in and i said just a minute i'm at wage bill don't i pay someone 
for all day Saturday. I said, well, yeah, yeah, no, you pay her, but she's she's got to shut the shop and sit in the shop for three hours and not answer the phone or go away for three hours. It's part of the deal for the Saturday person. So, uh, so uh, being a marketing genius, I was able to make the immediate <laughs> Did you get a consultant in or something? Yeah, yeah, I got some <laughs> management consultants <laughs> yes. in. Yeah, now we went over what yeah. could what, this what process... What way could we improve How this? could we improve this process and decided that if we opened, in fact, not only would we check, if the properties were ready early, we'd ring people the day before if we could, or at least in the morning, and say, we've managed to get your place ready early, why don't you come, come slightly early? early. Yeah. And do you know what? It was easier for us to get the people in. <laughs> in. And, and, and then I said, well, uh, who does the phone after five? And they said, what do you mean? We're closed. I said, well, no, no, who answers the like the inquiries after five o'clock? They said, no, no, we're closed. I said, well, so what? So what goes to answer phone? And so on the, the lady on Saturday, she doesn't do computers or anything. So she doesn't actually answer it. So I said, if someone rings at quarter past five on Friday, when they get a call back, I said, boom, Monday morning. <laughs> I said, well, don't lots of people work so they can't call in working hours and they need to pay their balances and need to inquire? And they said, well, I don't know, we have a lot of missed calls. People don't usually um, keep a message. So I also implemented incredible strategy of answering phone when people ring. <laughs> To buy stuff, and it's produced quite an improvement in Excellent. performance. We've we've found so it was it, an how open the, how goal. Are, how are the team responding to your uh, revolutionary changes? Ah, yes. Now about the revolutionary changes, um, the the team member that remains is 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 fabulous and has responded uh, perfectly to everything. Um, everybody else has chosen to retire, right, uh, or. Okay. Um, always left so I only have one I mean it was only five people anyway but yes I only have one five, one, you, you, one member of the original original team yeah. and, you, and you've brought some new people in yes so we've recruited <laughs> I've yes. recruited people that are a little more on my wavelength as it were yeah. perfect so it's clearly still exciting you. You're back in your town. You own your uh, dream company, but there's lots of there's there are changes going around, and, and we touched on this on the on the sort of uh, journey to this amazing location. But um, tech disruption of tech, Airbnb, Booking.com. You referred to them earlier. What's your thoughts on that impact on the industry? Yeah, so it's it's having a big impact with us, and it's a difficult thing to decide what to do. Um, Fortunately, in our market, first of all, because people said the traditional agencies that were booking only have been have been really hurt by the Airbnb model. Because in the end, if you've already organised your own caretaking, your own cleaner, you've got someone who answers the phone, and all your agent does is send you bookings, then it's very easy to sign up for Airbnb and um, and or you've got to answer your own emails, but. Um, but you know that's for many people that's not too difficult there's no phone calls allowed because you're not allowed to give your phone number out it's all done online that's the expectation and so they're being badly disrupted but for us here it's a bit more like what have the Romans ever done for us because um, the the um, when someone says oh you're going to get you know what has an agency ever done for me you're going to get wiped out by Airbnb and I say oh yeah no no what 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 was an agency you'd ever done for us apart from, well, answer the phones to customers and answer the emails? Well, okay, well, apart from answering the phones and the emails, what has an, what has an agency ever done for us? Well, 
well, we do organise the caretaking and, and get the houses cleaned. Okay, well, apart from answering the phone, answering the emails, organising the caretaking, organising the cleaning, um, we're on call 24 hours a day. Okay, so apart from being on, and you could go on, because yeah. we're a full-service agency, we have owners who live in Singapore, Australia, America. We have city barristers, people, you know, people who are corporates, and they do not want to be involved at all. They don't want to call on a Saturday to say there's a dishwasher failing when it's inconceivable. And so for us, it's much less of a threat on that caretaking side. Do you think it's adding to the supply because the publicity of mm. people realising that they can generate a revenue mm. from their properties? Do you think a lot more people are now... Yeah, buying holiday homes or putting their homes up to rent? Well, most certainly. So it's just like Uber and taxis, it's created, there's no doubt whatsoever that it's creating additional volume in the market of people coming to stay in. See, when I say self-catering, to me, self-catering means sort of butlins or, you know, a caravan site. But it's the it, people use a universal road for not being in a hotel. And so people who would never consider uh, staying somewhere that wasn't a hotel of being introduced to it, and it's undoubtedly increasing the supply side for shorter, shorter breaks. And it's increasing the demand with us, but also it's become a platform where people go first because it's got everything, or well, that's the perception. And so they bring us... Um, they bring us business we wouldn't otherwise have. I should say we do list on the platform. Um, but at the same time, they're venture funded. They pay. Um, the industry feels they're buying pay-per-click ads, for instance, at a rate that is not really economic in order to grow. And so they're almost funneling, funneling business that we would otherwise have got through their site because... They're, they're outbidding us or on uh, a rate that isn't isn't economically viable on uh, just like restaurant chains that can afford to open and lose money for a couple of three years uh, you know it's it, it's that part of the business and at the moment it's quite reasonable for us to use them but my feeling is you know the I'm very cautious about letting it become too much of our business mm. because it will their squeeze is coming at some yeah. point yeah absolutely in the, in the same way that delivery are learning what sort of food people yeah. order and what time they order it and uh, what's popular and therefore building their own kitchens you have to wonder what comes next have you given any thought because it, you know we're a tourism town historically yes. Paul Christchurch you know we, we've got hundreds and hundreds of hotels we've got a number of restaurants we have this huge flood of people come down in the summer um it's happened in Barcelona and Venice and places where Airbnb and this kind of rental income sector has become so big that it, it, it's made it impossible for the locals to live there. How's the impact, I suppose, one, on the town and two, on sandbanks? Is it becoming more of an issue where more and more properties are therefore going to rental and do you get any kind of feedback or thoughts on, on how people still live in those areas? Uh, yeah, well, this is, this is uh, literally an island almost and sandbanks itself and the bit we work in is very different to even probably Bournemouth uh, or Paul. And I've in Cornwall, we've saw that in a big way with people buying up houses. Here, 
the Sandbanks Peninsula has been dominated with second homes anyway, and it's not. It's not. If your if your aim is just to make some money, you wouldn't be buying a property on Sandbanks because the returns. You know, you'd buy ten. You'd buy. Uh, you'd buy ten apartments in central Bournemouth and turn them. You know, turn them over. And that's that would be the way to get margin out of them, and that's where we may see, uh, you know, we may see an impact, just like with the student accommodation. Um, we're not seeing that f feedback here at all. A little bit from retired, a hint from retired people who perhaps perceive there was a lot of publicity a few years ago about stag parties, um, living it up. The papers got onto it in yeah. posh areas, which was like rarely happens. It's not. It's not part of the culture here. It's not part of the business, but it's good headline. Posh people in Sandbanks have butlers in the bath next door, but um, it, we we really haven't seen that that issue here. Um, what I'm concerned about is that once we get, you know, the more reliant we are on them to bring our business, one day, particularly, you know, Airbnb is a private company that's growing. If they get acquired. Or if they IPO, they'll have a fiduciary duty to deliver maximum revenues to their um, to their shareholders, and that's got to mean squeezing the owners. Mm. So, and the regulation that we're getting in London, where they're now Airbnb operators are limited to ninety days a year, that's mm. presumably good news for you, is it? Because they, if they come through you, uh, they don't get that regulation. Any thoughts on that? Well, I I think. Uh, I, I, my understanding of those rules is it would apply to us if they brought it in here because yep. I don't think they discriminate against Airbnb. So they could they could bring in a regulation that said you were only allowed to do ninety days um, holiday letting. That would be a stratospherically huge um, sliding doors moment yep. wipeout because the the massive motivation for many people who've got a second home to let out is that they have to let um, a certain number of weeks to qualify as a business and as a as a holiday letting business which brings them the opportunity to treat it as a business offset expenses again not against their other income but it means their income is um, you know they can offset anything they spend on profit from the company, they can write stuff down. And crucially, they get entrepreneurs relief out in capital gain. So they get out, if they sell the place, they get out a 10% capital gain instead of 28. And that is driving, that is why many places are not locked up. But what, what would happen here is it wouldn't, those places wouldn't come on the market for ordinary boys and girls to buy flat and sandbags to live in they'd merely be, if they didn't have those benefits, then they'd be locked up and no one would come mm. for, for 99% of the cases, I'm confident. Really? Yeah. Which then has an impact on the on the restaurants? Yes. Because because we're also seeing, I mean, this is very Bournemouth-specific, although I wouldn't be surprised if it's happening uh, across every university, city and town in the country, but we're seeing these massive properties built for student-lets and students don't seem to live in the same way they did when I'm sure you and I were there, where uh, it was pretty pretty, <laughs> pretty crappy accommodation. They need to, now seem to have these beautiful blocks and communal areas and all these new builds. Uh, and then I'm being told that a lot of those are now being released in the summer, so the students disappear for yeah. the summer and they're being released for 
rentals. Have you have you spotted that? Is it true, and is it having an impact? Uh, I I haven't seen it because I've been blinkered in doing stuff here, and in fact, when I first arrived, I thought. I'm going to take over, you know, I'm going to create a brand in Bournemouth, a brand in Poole. And having got here, it's a balance of there's so much to do right here on the peninsula that I actually have decided, no, 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 for the foreseeable future, we're not going to Bournemouth. And I actually fend off inquiries from from Bournemouth. So I haven't been involved in it. Um, Getting off subject or whatever, I think, unsurprisingly, the whole... And my sons have just been through university and the whole thing is starting to look like a bit of a money-making business where people are encouraged to go to university, which means they need accommodation. And the whole thing about um, uh, offering people places without the need to actually get any grades, unconditional offers, but in order to persuade them to come to their place because it's become a numbers game, the more students you can attract. And uh, maybe blasphemous, but you've got to ask yourself if the 50 grand of debt is worth the 2-2 in uh, history of art or... Uh, Fishing. Or, 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 or whatever <laughs> degree that you come out with. And yeah. you've got to ask yourself um, if you had... If you, if you took the 50 grand and started a business or if you spent three years working for nothing in somewhere that was that really knew what they were doing would you would you be better off and I think that it's starting you know seeing all those blocks going up in Bournemouth every time you drive past which is fueling they're going to have to fill them and to fill them they're going to have to fill the places and to get the place they're going to have to compete the other universities and that's going to mean offering places to people for whom are perhaps less suited, but that's not. It used to be that your university, you know, interviewed people and got those to study that they thought yeah. was suitable for them. And I don't think that is the case at it's, all. Yeah, it's, I think the, the key thing, and it's the same teaching speaking to anybody in any particular sector, and I'm sure you know, not not just in hospitality, but it's those those speed of change and the curveballs that you don't notice. You know, we've we've got a little hotel, and as the uh, as the university adds hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rooms into the mix every summer, and then you know, clearly mm. supply and demand. If they go on supply for July and August when the students aren't around, that it's got to have an impact on price. But I think the key with all of this is that you've just got to constantly keep learning. So there's no point whinging about the changes that are coming. You know, the tech revolutions come in it's easier for the customer regulation tries to catch up so airbnb you know particularly like i say in places like venice and and barcelona um they're really trying to work fast to work out yeah how does how does the center of venice not just become a, a tourism town so it's got its challenges but it's interesting is you mentioned you know rumsey's been around for a very long time will it still be around in 50 years uh, uh absolutely i'm certain it will be because of the location uh, because of the lo- location that we are here, whether whether the whether the business will change, we, we well we we don't. I used to say yeah, when I've asked people about because they ask about the, what will the rules, what will the tax rules be on pensions in thirty years' time, and I'd say well I can't tell you, but I can tell you they won't be the same as as they are today. Uh, I it, I can't see how the business would change in that people are going to want to come on holiday to Sandbanks. And uh, if anything, you would think in our glorious future, you know, the 20 hour work week and all that, that we're heading for and uh, which doesn't seem to have arrived. No. But leisure is certainly becoming 
you see the I, I read something recently about the the next generation are much more interested in experiences than they are in physical things so yep. they're much more likely to go to spend a lot of money on traveling than they are mm. a fancy car uh, or, or a new front door so it's, it's or even owning a property and there's another whole Huge whole thing. rabbit hole yeah, to, yeah, uh, 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 to go down yeah, so nobody. no I absolutely um, I, I absolutely believe that it will be here in 50 years and thriving and who knows what format maybe we'll have built blocks of accommodation that's specific for yeah, what maybe. people want and maybe yeah. we'll you know maybe we'll own properties maybe because we don't own any properties at all at the moment it's a right. sort of religious part that we're an agent not a not an operator so there's no conflict you know? okay yeah so we'll see okay so no more no more crashes of uh, 2008 hopefully congratulations for what you've achieved the, the journey's fascinating you seem in a very uh, happy place now in a happy part of the world with a with a business that you love and with all of that knowledge and your uh this the, the sort of sales background that you've got you're clearly good at it where can people go to uh, to follow the adventure and follow the journey and find out more well to come and find out you can go to rumseyofsandbanks.co.uk and you can see all the properties that we have and if anyone wants to email simon at rumseyofsandbanks.co.uk i'm always happy to chat along or uh, join in anything and if anybody wants to offer something to our guests you know we'd love to send our guests to in fact i'm thinking of having the humans of hospitality guide to hand out to everyone they come to tell them which beer to drink which Perfect. chocolate to eat which yeah, you know where, where who's 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 cakes to buy as it were because we see you know i think that would be that would be a great little thing to yeah no that'd be good and i was going to add that if they can't find you uh, at the office they might find you in a couple of local bars so uh, often found having a beer at the on, on a stall in jenkins and sons uh, they'll track you down uh yes that's right always a, always, always a good chance you'll see me there. perfect simon thanks so much for spending the time good luck in your uh, in your next adventure in your business thanks mark it was a pleasure to be So there you have it. You have reached the end of another episode of the Humans of Hospitality podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please go and visit our website, humansofhospitality.co.uk for the show notes and extra episodes and information. And whilst you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and to receive free materials all about the humans behind our incredible industry. Lastly, if you could subscribe, rate and review this podcast, you will be massively helping me out and it would be hugely appreciated thank you so much we'll be launching another podcast in just seven days time cheers cheers